I think you told me as we were discussing, I think I might have a contract coming up and you were like, listen, when you go down, go into any negotiation, realize sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. When you're the hammer, hammer their ass. And I was like, yes, speak in my language. And I have never forgotten that piece of advice. Hey, now it's cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast, episode 241. And I am really, really excited about this because I'll be joined by an old friend, former ESPN colleague and a current journalist for The Atlantic, Jamel Hill. Jamel and I go back to our days together at ESPN. She used to appear on my daily TV show quite a bit back then. She has since transitioned from print to television and every other platform that matters. In fact, she is on one impressive career journey. In fact, she has had an amazing career, a career rocket ship, really. Jamel and I go back to our days together when she would appear on my daily talk show on ESPN, Jim Rome is Burning, and she has had an amazing run since then. A great, great career. And as you're about to hear, her entire life has been an incredible journey. An incredible journey with an extremely challenging background. And now she is sharing that story in her new memoir, Uphill, a memoir. We cover all of that. We talk about her podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and a lot more. This is an episode you need to hear, an episode that I can't wait for you to hear. It's Ep 241 with Jamel Hill, and it's coming at you right now. First of all, Jamel, it has been way, way too long. I am so thrilled to be able to get caught up with you. First things first, how are you? How are things, my friend? I'm great. And, you know, um, again, I, I can never repay you for just how pivotal you were in my career. You know, I was just developing as a broadcaster when I was making all of those appearances on Jim Rome is Burning. You were the first ESPN show. You may have been the first ESPN show I ever hosted. And I was terrified because uh, it's hard to fill your shoes. And your show was not an easy one to do. So I just thank you for just willingly giving your platform and just um, helping me boost my career. Like, that's a debt that can never be repaid. You know, you absolutely did not need to say that, but I so appreciate that. And I so appreciate you. In fact, Jamel, you said something, and we'll talk about the memoir in great detail in a moment. I'm so proud of you, and the book is so fascinating. But you said something really interesting recently and you said, I remember early on when I was still developing as a columnist, I used to think about my voice in a much different way. I thought it just kind of magically happened. I didn't realize that it's really something you have to work on and practice. End of quote. I go right there because I do remember when you first came up and you were bold and you were brave, but you were learning. In other words, you had to get better at being yourself. How did you go about doing that? You know, this, you know, our game, um, Romy, this is a game of repetition. And I tell younger journalists this all the time, younger broadcasters, or if you're even in print, is that you do get better at being yourself uh, on television and in these different media spaces, the more you practice at it. You know, a good friend of mine who's an excellent writer, Wesley Lowry, he uh, wrote for the Washington Post and, and writes for some other uh, outlets. He said something once we were on a journalism panel that stayed with me. Journalism is a trade. And, you know, just like a mechanic gets better, the more cars they work on, it's the same thing with journalism. So I think as I got more comfortable, as I got more confident in my abilities, it really allowed me um, or allowed my true self to come through in my writing. And when I was on television, I, you know, ignorance is sometimes bliss in a good way, thankfully, early on, because I didn't see or uh, or see myself like being 
a long time TV lifer. Like I, it was just something to do on the side in addition to my writing. I think because I had that attitude, I never came in trying to do anything but be myself on television. No, it always came through. It always came through. And you were always authentic like that. And you were real like that. Now, Jamil, speaking of authentic and real, your memoir is really intense and it's deeply personal. Why? Why did you decide to share some of the more painful and intimate moments of your life? And then what was it like to do it and put it out there for the world to see? Well, uh, as you know, um, I'm the kind of person that believes in in truth telling. I believe in transparency. And if you're in a job like this, that's the expectation of the people that you cover, that you are trying to craft their story or their narrative. Like you want them to be transparent with you. And so what would I look like in trying to, um, you know, tell my own story and shape my own narrative if I were not forthcoming about where I've been, what I've experienced, the trauma that I've gone through. And, you know, another part of this too is that I wanted to make sure that with some of these difficult topics that I discuss, you know, the addiction of my parents, um, the sexual abuse that uh, had an unfortunate and horrible legacy in my family, I wanted to take the shame off of that. A lot of people can relate to these complicated family dynamics, they can relate to these issues. And we unfortunately can be a very uh, a society that's not very compassionate. And so there's a layer of shame and silence around those issues. And so I know people look at me now and they see the career at ESPN, they see all the things that I'm doing now and TV, film, production and podcasting, writing, all these various platforms. And they think I was born here, that I got, you know, I was born last night and showed up at ESPN and that's not <laughs> how it works. You know, there was an entire uh, metaphor, metamorphosis, an entire history that went into getting me to that moment. So I just wanted to have my own space to tell people my story my way. So Jamil, take us back then. Let's talk about part of the story. I mean, they need to get the book, Uphill and Memoir, to really get the entire story. But if we were to go back, what was it like for you growing up in Detroit in the 1970s? So, uh, you know, even though I was born in, in, in 75, I think the, my coming of age started to happen, obviously, in the 80s as a became more aware and, you know, just uh, kind of out of the toddler phase. So I really consider myself growing up right in the 80s. And to paint a picture for people for what Detroit was like back then, you know, the only time Detroit wound up on the national news was when the murder rate was released. And Detroit was usually either number one or in the top five. And this was at the height and introduction of the crack uh, epidemic as well. And so I'm living in uh, this inner city that's plagued with a lot of problems that a lot of other inner cities are plagued by, where you have, you know, rampant drug use, rampant, a, rampant, a rampant drug trade in general. Obviously, you have gun violence, you know, safety issues. And um, you also have a city that if, you know, America, you know, is, is sick in Detroit, people have, you know, basically the bluebonic plague because, the unemployment rate was very high. Um, you had an auto industry that was um, fluctuating, you know, kind of in and out in terms of uh, being able to provide jobs for people. And so it was just a very tumultuous time for the city in general. And so I'm smack dab in the middle of this. Um, you know, my father and I, we had an estranged relationship because he um, was trying to get a handle on a heroin addiction. Uh, my mother suffered from, unfortunately, a 
a very traumatic and violent rape and she was uh, sexually abused as a child. And because of that, she was suffering some, from some very um, intense PTSD, but then nobody had a term for it. And certainly when it came to mental health, um, that just, especially in our community, in the black community, that just was not something that was openly discussed. You know, therapy was not for us, was kind of the community, unofficial, you know, community uh, mantra, if you will. And so I had a mother who was really um, losing herself um, and growing up and having to navigate all these very tough things. In many ways, it robbed me of a real childhood. I certainly was able to experience real authentic childlike times, but there was also this heaviness to my life that was happening. And, um, you know, it was, it was obviously difficult uh, for me to kind of grow up under the umbrella of all of this. But one of the other reasons when you're asking me a moment ago about why I decided to write this book, the other part of this too, is that I want people to understand that your circumstances do not have to dictate the future you may see for yourself. And I never let that happen. I will say this, despite the troublesome things I may have experienced and, uh, and witnessed as a kid, the one thing I learned very easily and quickly is what not to do. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back. So tip off the season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can make any $5 NBA Moneyline bet and get 200 bucks in free bets if your team wins. Check this out. In addition to the usual bets, everybody can boost their winnings up to 100% with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to DraftKings Sportsbook app. Opt in and place a stepped-up same-game parlay today. With payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is where I go to bet on the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now. Use the promo code ROME, R-O-M-E. Make any $5 bet this week and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with the promo code ROME. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions to apply. See show notes for details. I mean, Jamel, there's so much in that for me to respond to. Like, I, I don't even know where to start. But let me start right with what you just said. Like, what did you learn not to do? Well, one, stay away from hard drugs. That's number one. Okay? Right. Um, and, you know, the one thing about it is that, uh, you know, as everybody knows, addiction is a sickness. And there were so many adults who were playing key roles in my life that I saw making bad decisions in part because they didn't feel like they were left with many choices. And the one thing that I definitely wanted to do for myself in the future and the life I was creating was to make sure that I had the choices. There was so much instability around me, Jim, that I then focused wholeheartedly from the time I was in 10th grade on being a sports journalist. And as I wrote in my memoir, the one thing and the one reason, big reason why my career became a safe haven is because it was the thing that didn't let me down. I knew if I poured this amount of energy into it between my work ethic and just my ability to just scrap and hustle, then a expected outcome would happen. And that became my saving grace. You know, you've interviewed thousands of athletes over the course of your career. You hear so many of them talk about their ticket out. Well, my ticket out wasn't a jump shot. And it wasn't anything athletic 
related in terms of my physical ability, my ticket out was journalism. So you found your escape and you were writing, but still, Jamel, this, th- there is so much trauma in this. And, you know, granted, when you and I, we spent a lot of time together. You would come to Los Angeles and you would do my TV show and we would hang out before the show. We would do the show. We'd hang out a little bit after the show. But we never you know, sat down and had these long, long conversations. Even like this, I would have, and again, not that you wore this on your sleeve. And I would say it's about athletes. We don't really know any of these people based on what. And this was really back in the day when there was no social and there was no long form. But I would have, until this book and until recently, and until, I mean, watching you develop, I would have known none of this, none of this at all. And that I would say the same thing about most people, right? We're all going through things, but we don't know. My question is, and you've talked about this, how as a young person were you able to turn all of this pain into perspective yeah and not just perspective but purpose and uh, i think it was just because i desired for something better a lot of times when um you know certain forces that are beyond your control overtake you it's because uh it beats your spirit down so much that you don't think you deserve anything better the 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 part where i am um extremely grateful very blessed is that that was never something that was instilled in me. And, you know, I I write about this a lot in this memoir is that regardless of what my mother was going through in terms of uh, her drug use and um, trying to mentally recover from just a horrific incident that happened to her, the standard was the standard. (laughs) Okay. Like I couldn't come through the house with bad grades. I could not come through the house. Um, you know, with bad behavior, there was an expectation even among people who were struggling with demons in their own lives. And because that expectation was set, achievement was expected. And um, it was something very easy to latch on to. It was something that was instilled and drilled in me. And so because of that, I never allowed those very traumatic circumstances that I was in completely sink me. I knew that the life that I was living as a child was not the life I wanted. And I was going to do everything possible to make sure that there was a different path for me in a different future. Jamil, you mentioned at the very top or near the top that you had a strange relationship with your father because he had an addiction to heroin. You write in the memoir that at one point you were in one of your father's arms while a heroin needle hung from his other arm. It's, It's an unbelievable thing, it's intense. How old were you then? Was that a really bad day or did that happen more than once? Uh, it was um, when I was a baby and it was my mother who discovered it. it you know, she, they had moved back from, from Oakland because they spent, uh, a, you know, about a year uh, there in Oakland because, um, you know, my father, he had started to, um, you know, he was doing heroin when my mother met him and she didn't know it. And my mother, they lived, they met because they lived in the same boarding house. Uh, because my mother had run away from home and essentially, you know, had, returned briefly. But she, uh, after some time, she didn't want to live with my grandmother anymore, live with my auntie. Rules got a little intense there. So she decided that she was going to do it on her own. And so when my mother first met my father, she had no idea that he was um, doing heroin. And she didn't discover he had a serious problem until she got to Oakland. And, you know, um things were not going well out there. And um, my grandmother flew her back home. My mother found her own place. My father was supposed to paint her apartment. He wound up moving in. And when she came home one day, that's when she saw him on the toilet, nodding out. 
and he had the needle in one arm and me in the other. And my mother took me and never came back to that apartment. Mm. How, how was he able to hide a habit like that from your mother? You know, I asked my mother the same thing because I talked to her extensively for this book. And she said, you know, despite the fact that she was as, as street smart as she was, you're talking about a woman who first ran away from home at 11 years old. Hmm. And despite, you know, her being savvy and certainly, um, you know, somebody, it ain't easy to get one over. Uh, he had told her because she she told me the story about how one time she was braiding his hair in the, in the boarding house and um he just fell asleep right in her, right as he was doing it, or so she thought. And she thought it was just so odd how he would just nod out at certain times. And when she asked him about it, he said it was because he was working hard. It was because of the medication. So he hid it. Now, once they move in together and they're there with one another every day, then she saw like, oh no, this is just how he gets down on top of also being an extremely heavy drinker. And um, it was, uh, kind of ironic because the whole reason my father encouraged my mother to move to Oakland with him is because he knew he needed to get out of Detroit because he felt like he was going to either end up dead or in jail. But just because you move across country, that doesn't mean the same habits won't follow you. Clones, what do we want when we're craving protein or we need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. No, we want beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky, shriveled, dry, and tasteless. Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and it's tasty. It's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein, and it comes in four amazing flavors that satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Exactly right. So, I mean, you write about this and it speaks to your determination, your grit, your strength, your ambition that you're able to somehow fight your way out, work your way out. You stay determined and you start to build yourself up and you have this career and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I skip ahead right now. You come on the show and I, I sense something great in you and then you just go on and you just blow up and everything's great and then you have a brand and then you have a point of view, you have a perspective, you're in demand, you're on shows. And then in 2017, Jamel, all hell breaks loose when you tweet that President Trump was a, quote, white supremacist. And now we know, and you know what, I, I digress. I remember, Jamel, I was late. It's funny now. I was late to Twitter. You got there before I did. And I remember you saying, Rome, you're going to love this. It's going to be good for you. You're going to have a lot of followers really quickly. <laughs> and I don't remember why, but I remember you telling me that. And then sure enough, in 2017, you hit this tweet and you call President Trump a white supremacist. How dramatically did not only your career, but your entire life change the second you hit tweet or shortly thereafter send? Uh, man, it, Jim, it blew my whole life up. And it was one of those things where I honestly didn't even think it was that controversial. I mean, I know that sounds crazy in hindsight. 
Uh, but, may, you know, maybe especially not now, because what I call them, frankly, a lot of people call them that now in 2022. Like that's nothing new under the sun. I just thought that we knew that then. <laughs> and I made the mistake of really not thinking that was a big deal, even though, um, as you you know, probably know that ESPN has a very specific social media policy. They do not like personal attacks upon politicians. Um, and really, they would prefer if you just stayed out of political waters in general. And that was not um, something that was, um, you know, a surprise to me. And I knew what the policy was, but I wasn't really thinking about it in those terms. And people have to remember, it was a reply to me. This was not something, this was not a hot take I just got off on my own. I was replying to somebody else who was defending uh, him and his behavior. And, you know, after that, it was just like a snowball. Um, it just uh, just kept getting bigger and bigger. And next thing I know, the White House is saying I should be fired and Donald Trump is tweeting about me. Out of all the scenarios I may have envisioned, sure, I may have envisioned some black, backlash, maybe, okay, sure, maybe a couple people write about it, maybe some people comment about it. I never expected that to make it all the way to the White House. And as you know, because of his personality, the former president, um, he has a very intense following. And I certainly have had hate mail. I've certainly been called racial slurs throughout my career. So that was nothing new under the sun, but the intensity and the volume of the death threats of the hate mail, this was on steroids. And so it just changed the way I moved in life. It changed, you know, um, people certainly looking at me a certain way. You know, the fact is, I remember vividly, I was living in Hartford, Connecticut, which is, you know, right outside of Bristol because I was on air every day. And I remember walking into one of my favorite restaurants that had multiple TVs at the bar, and I was being discussed on every network. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, this is, I can't believe that this is my life. And so um, it was, it, it really put it um, in a place I had never imagined it going. And, you know, suddenly I'm a hashtag on Twitter, which usually you don't want to be, you know, it's like I'm a hashtag. And while there were certainly a lot of people uh, who took issue with what I said, and they kept calling ESPN switchboard for weeks to let them know this, that I should be fired, they needed to take me off air, and all these other things. Um, there was also a lot of people who agreed with me, and I also did not anticipate so many prominent athletes, LeBron, Colin Kaepernick, Kevin Durant, um, Dwayne Wade, and entertainers and celebrities having my back. Many of these people I'd never met before, and it was just a really crazy situation um, and, you know, even since then, it, um, you know, while the, the intensity of the backlash has certainly, you know, dialed down is that now people see me purely in that, in that space. And suddenly I went from being a sports journalist or a sports anchor to, you know, um, uh, people thinking I'm, you know, some kind of political commentator. So it just, it really changed the trajectory of my profile it changed the trajectory of my career. And, but there were so many blessings that came from it, Jim, because, you know, um, when you're at ESPN, and this is not to say you don't give your effort every day to, to be your best, you certainly do, but ESPN allows you a certain cushion and a certain safety, but also it can breed complacency, especially if you get to where I had gotten to at that point, being the anchor of the six o'clock sports center. There was a lot of things that I wanted to do. Um, there was a lot of um, 
you know, uh, career ambitions I still had, but I sort of put them on pause or put them to the side. I was like, ah, oh, just like wait till this ESPN thing kind of runs out and, and then I'll get to the things that I see as part of a bigger dream that I have for myself. That situation uh, taught me that you can't afford to be complacent. And it also um, showed me that I never wanted to put myself in that position again. And by that position, I mean, uh, and I know you can certainly relate to this. If I want to do something or don't want to do something now, only one person I go to, me. And that's it. It gave me the courage. It gave me the will and the determination to bet on myself yet again in my career in a much different way than I had because I did not want to be in a place or working for a corporation or working with a corporation where um, I felt like I could not say important things without facing um, the kind of reaction I did internally and externally at ESPN. Fucking preach, Jamel. <laughs> I like that so much. All right, so I have used antiperspirant sticks for years, but what is amazing about Dove Men Dry Spray is that it feels light and clean on your skin, and it's also quick and easy to use, and it's great for topping up when you're on the go. Now, let me ask you this. Do you feel like your antiperspirant keeps you dry all day? Dove Men Plus Care Dry Spray has an instantly drying antiperspirant formula that can help give you a cleaner feel and offers 48, I said 48, 48 hour sweat and odor protection. Dove Men Dry Spray feels light and clean on your skin, and it is so quick and easy to use, especially when you're on the go. Also, Dove Men Dry Spray contains Dove's unique one-quarter moisturizing cream that helps to protect your skin. It leaves your skin feeling comfortable, and it helps to protect it. Win, win, win. Try Dove Men Dry Spray. Goes on dry, clean feel all day. That is such a difficult thing. There is so much courage and so much grit in that. And politically, some people are not going to like at all what you and I are talking about right now. But, Jamal, I, I'm older than you. I've been in this thing longer than you. And I've started this podcast called The Reinvention Project. And, you know, for different reasons, we need to reinvent ourselves. I just I love what you said so much that because I understand, although I went through something, I don't want to say similar. I had my own moment back in the day. And I'm here to tell you, and I think you already understand this. People still bring up Everett to me. It's going I mean, are we coming up on 30 years on this thing? It still comes up. Like that shit never goes away, right? But at the same time, right. you find out who your real friends are and you find out who's not there for you. And then you find out what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? How are you going to react? And my thing happened before there was social media. I can only and my thing did not involve the White House. And my thing did not involve <laughs> race. So I can only imagine what you went through. And this is why I reacted as strongly as I just did to that answer. I can only imagine the heat and the intensity and the pressure but you just said listen I'm not going to let that define me and by the way I will come out of this better because I will be free and then I will be able to do these other things that I want to do like you were thinking about these things long before that happened correct it, it was I mean before the the tweets um I was unhappy on sports center you know in again I, I know I am preaching to the choir right here is that we went through some very difficult creative differences and you know how that place works and you know how the machinery of it and the political maneuvering. And there was a very um, unexpected 
at least for us, uh, unexpected management change that occurred when we were just about six or seven months into the show. I mean, we were already kind of trying to find our footing and and get into a groove and, um, you know, really figure out what the show really is, which which takes time. And these fights that we were having just on a daily basis and these changes, it just got really exhausting. And I remember saying to my former co-host, uh, Michael Smith, who you know quite well, um, also another former uh, Jim Rome is burning panelist, uh, you know it. quite well. You bet. Yeah, you, yeah, you know quite well that um, at some point you get tired of having to go in to work every day trying to fight to be you. At some point, you just get tired of that. And I told Mike early on, I was like, dude, I ain't going to make it. I'm just going to let you know. Like, at the end of this deal, when this sports center run is done, I'm going to be done with this. And so in my mind, I thought I could last the contract. And what those tweets did was it gave me an out. And I knew they didn't want to move on. And I knew they were going to, um, uh, you know, just kind of see how things played out. Um, but I also knew that the people who were directly in charge of our show didn't really want us there. And that, you know, we were, we were not, we were, um, maybe the mobile quarterbacks who coach and GM got fired. And then they brought in a new regime that wanted a drop back passer. <laughs> and it was like, okay, y'all want to do old sports center. We don't want to do old sports center. If, if old sports center as in the sports center that most people, you know, have known, if that's what's on the table, if that were on the table when they first came to us and asked us to do it, we would have never done that show. But that's not what was on the table. And then midway through, the creative direction really changed. And so um, once I got the sense of uh, the fact that, you know, the people who are in charge of our show didn't really buy in to us, I knew it was just the runway that I needed because especially during that time in 2017, um, Jim, you know, ESPN was in a, a very critical place. They were being bagged on for being too liberal, too political, all these other things. And they found themselves being polarizing, which is crazy because it's ESPN. They've never been polarizing. Well, they were then because there was definitely some outside agitators driving that narrative. And so um, I knew that it would come a point where they would realize, I don't want to be on this show any more than you want me on this show. So let's just be real about that and let me off this show. So I came to them after John Skipper resigned and I asked if I could be let out. And even though I know people like to tell the story or feed the perception that I was kicked off the show, I was not contractually. They had to give a sports center in that time slot for three years and this was just year one and the only reason that I was able to get off the show is that I had to waive that part of my contract it's like an athlete with a no trade clause and I waived my no trade clause just so I could have some peace I so get it I understand this I've been through this myself and I think a lot of people in a lot of different walks of life have been through this Jamel for instance you know I as you know I was a huge Mark Shapiro guy Mark Shapiro brought me back to ESPN 
I had a run there, and then I left after the everything. My contract elapsed, and Mark Shapiro, who I knew would run that network one day, did, in fact. And then he brought me back, and it was great. And then when he leaves, then, well, he's not the guy who brought you in. I've seen this on my radio side, too, where I've done big deals and had great bosses to work for, and then they move on, and then it's somebody else who didn't bring you in. So, I mean, this is exactly what happens. I'm really curious, really quickly, like, when you watch ESPN right now, like, I'm not saying the world should not change, and content changes. And, you know, it used to be, right, like, ESPN was, quote, the last bastion of journalism. When you watch now, if you watch now, what time, what do you think? I mean, it, the, the way the world is right now, like, I don't want to be somebody who has no MPH left. I don't want the world to blow right by me. I don't want to be the guy that aged out and is stumbling around in center field, but I don't want to be somebody who's saying shit just to say shit. And I'm not saying that's what's happening there, but there's a lot of noise now, a lot of noise. Like what sports content do you gravitate towards now? So it's interesting. I know this is probably going to sound weird to people, and I don't know if you ever you know, went through this, but honestly, being off the network actually helped me regain a lot more of my organic love for sports. Oh, I fuck mean, yeah. Honestly, yeah. Can like, I interrupt? Can I interrupt and say yes? Yep. Of course. Of course, because I never, <laughs> because I never have, right? You have, because we're always in it 24-7. Don't, and don't anybody twist what Jamel and I were saying, because I, I don't want to speak for you, but yes, we love the game. Yes, we love sports. Yes, it's afforded us this life, but if you have to get away from it, right? You have to let it breathe. Yeah, no, you do, and... You know, the, the thing is, especially like when you're in a position, when you're on TV every single day and you have to deliver an opinion about so many things, there's going to be a degree in which you don't care about the things that you're actually talking about. And I, I was more than happy once I got away from that constant machine of, you know, 24 being at a 24 hour sports network where your brain really never turns off, where you never stop thinking of topics. You never stop thinking of guests to have. You never like it's ongoing. You may have left the building, but you're still thinking about the job that you have to do every single day. And I didn't realize, and this is one of many reasons I have so much respect for people like you who have done this every day for a long time. But it wasn't until I left ESPN in 2018 I looked back and I was like, damn, I've been doing TV for five straight years every day. And SportsCenter is a well-produced shit show. And, you know, like every day is a fire, it's a fire drill. That's, that's how it works. And I didn't realize, like, how burnt out I actually was. And now when I watch sports, it feels so good to watch a game and not have to think about my take. Not have to think about, oh, what's Tom Brady going through and how can we – manufacture this into a conversation and it's like i just want to watch tom brady read about all his relationship drama and just kind of go on with my day and just leave it there and be a fan and, so, and just be a, fan. Yeah, be a fan yeah like i um you know going to games and stuff like that it's just like much more of an enjoyable experience because it doesn't become work and so um you know i'm really grateful uh, for the time that i had there i love writing about sports but I love the way I write about it now because there is bigger things than arguing about LeBron or Jordan or bigger things than arguing about who's going to win the AFC East. And those are all important topics and they're great entertainment value for sure. But being able to write about the convergence of culture, politics, gender and race in connection with sports is much more fulfilling for me because I get to take a 60,000 view on a lot of issues. The whole reason I wanted to be a sports journalist is because sports is one of the few things we actually do together. We're a very segregated society, 
But as you know, you can have people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different, you know, neighborhoods, a different gender, um, races. If everybody loves the Lakers, then they're going to come together for that. And if everybody loves LeBron or everybody loves Kevin Durant, that means that through those vehicles, you're going to be able to speak and inform people in a different way because of the tribalism that sports encourages. And that's the reason I got into this. And that's why I'll always write about sports, commentate on it in some way. But I don't think I want to go back to doing some of the things that I did while I was at ESPN. I much more prefer to talk about and discuss sports in this way. I understand you. Leave me with this thought. You named your podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Why did you name it that? What does that mean? Because this is the season of my life, Romy. Um, you know, once I left ESPN, and I'm sure you probably went through a degree of this, if not like a lot of it. But once I left there, I realized that this was a season of empowerment. This was a season of ownership for me. And this was a season of me not really giving a fuck about what people thought. So I named my podcast Unbothered because it really represented the mentality I was in. I'm just as passionate, just as driven, ambitious, all those things that I was before. But now it's different for me because every day I wake up and I do um, you know, the things that I'm really passionate about. I work with people who where we don't have to agree on everything, but we're value aligned. Every job that I have right now, Romy, is a job I want and not a job I need. And that's the beauty of being unbothered. This message is sponsored by Discover. Did you know you could reduce the number of unwanted calls and emails with online privacy protection? The latest innovation from Discover. Discover will help you regularly remove your personal info, like your name and address, from 10 popular people search websites that could sell your data. And they will do it for free. Activate in the Discover app and see terms and learn more at discover.com slash online privacy protection. Can I tell you how much I appreciate you, how much I admire you, how much I respect you, how much I like you, how much I like this conversation? The memoir, Jamel, Uphill, a memoir. I would imagine that just so they know, they can get this book wherever they get their books, or would you recommend they look elsewhere? No, they can get their books wherever that they get their books. Also, yes, there is an audio recording. So all you Audible heads, like you can get from Audible or Apple Books or wherever. I've definitely enjoyed this conversation. I mean, so much has changed uh, since uh, I was seeing you on a more regular basis. What's hilarious is that I'm now also a Cali resident, too. I live in Los Angeles. So... <laughs> You know, it's crazy. I, I, I knew that you spent time here. I did not know that you actually live here. How's the LA life treating you? Yeah, I love it. I mean, listen, the only thing that prevented me before from being out here is money and opportunity. And so when you were asking me a moment ago about being unbothered, part of that season is being able to finally be in a position to make choices uh, for myself and for the balance of, of my life. I mean, Los Angeles is the first place I've lived where I actually picked to live, picked there to live as a professional. I've been here four years, um, got married here in 2019. And so um, it's the first place I've lived my entire professional career where I can say, oh yeah, I see myself here for 15 or 20 years. And so I love it. I love the fact that I'm rooted. My husband and I bought, bought a house here in 2020. So 
I'm just chilling, enjoying the sunshine, never having to deal with winter again. It is everything. <laughs> it is everything. It is the absolute best. Good for you. And you earned every last bit of it, Jamel. It is so good to get caught up. And, and I want to say this on the way out. I really do appreciate that you remember our time together, that we came up together, we shared that time together, that as you get older, and you know this because you already have an amazing perspective, those times, those things, whatever we went through, whoever we worked for, it was about the relationships, right? And I just, it makes me very happy that you remember those times as fondly as you did, and you consider them kind of formative times for your career. I'm just, that, that makes me happy because I, I really value those times too. Romy, you might have given me the best negotiating uh, advice I've ever received from anybody. I think you told me as we were discussing, I think I might have had a contract coming up and you were like, listen, when you go, down, go into any negotiation, realize sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. When you're the hammer, hammer their ass. And I was like, yes, speak in my language. And I have never forgotten that piece of advice. That is the best. And you, you know how I know that because I've been on both sides of that. I know how that goes. I know how that goes. This book is entitled Uphill, A Memoir. Sorry to interrupt you, Jamel. It's so great to get caught up. I really appreciate that. That was absolutely awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And one of these days, we got to get together. So what is the fastest ball sport in the world? Not baseball, not tennis. In fact, it is the sport of high lie, spelled J-A-I-A-L-A-I originating in the Basque region of Spain and played professionally in the U.S., most notably in the 1980s. Highlight is making an unprecedented comeback. The ball reaches speeds of 150 miles per hour. The action is intense. The danger factor is high. Six-person teams of professional athletes play the sport at the Magic City Fronten in Miami, Florida. I invite you to check out all the action Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m. and Friday night at 7 p.m. Go to HighLightWorld.com or download the free Highlight app in the App Store. The sport with its intensity and athleticism is well worth watching. Check out all the action at HighlightWorld.com. Matches are played similar to tennis with a player or team required to win two sets to win a match. Each set is played up to six points. It is a sport you need to check out. HighlightWorld.com. Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m., Friday at 7 p.m. I know I say this all the time, but that really is the reason why I do that side hustle. So I can have conversations like that. So I can sit down and chop it up with people like that. So I can get caught up with people like that. I am absolutely thrilled that Jamel made that time and showed up the way she did. And could not be more proud of her or the career she's having or what she's done with her life. An amazing story. And I'm extremely inspired and very pleased and proud to be friends with her. If you're interested in more raw unfiltered, and extended conversations like that one, I've got good news for you. There are 240 of them already banked and waiting, and we pump out a brand new one every single week. So take a second, subscribe, and that way every single new episode will find its way to you, and you will not have to look for it. So while you find that subscribe button, let me leave you now with your voicemails. First new message. Rome, this is Tampa Tom. Let's go, lose. Let's go. Get outplayed by PJ Walker. Let's go. Suck. Even though that's not a take, I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. Belichick, 13 games under 500 without Tom Brady. That's all you need to know.
I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Hello. This one goes out to Tommy Baby. Here's a story of a goat named Brady who appears to be a bit of an ass munch. Up the hood's ass in New England to the docks of Tampa Bay. Till the one day when the O-line didn't protect him. Sack after sack out to lunch as he left the field, of course crying. Is how they became Ball Baby's Bench, Ball Baby's Bench, Ball Baby's Bench. You protect me, I'll cry, Ball Baby's Bench. That's what's in. Message deleted. Next message. This is Ken in Milwaukee. Jim, I know what you're talking about now when you say diarrhea is a great equalizer. After watching the Green Bay Packers crap all over themselves in the last three games, what did they think would happen when they traded 95% of their offense over to the Raiders? A few years back, Aaron Rodgers spelled out relax. Well, I think now it's time he learned to spell rebuild. It's the time. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Yo, Romy, I was on the outside in Omaha, about at your dad's age when he happened to pass, and just listen to Casey's stuff. That was unfreaking godly. If somebody could just hold a nanogram of the freaking energy that guy throws out, that's unbelievable. Thanks for putting it out, and we don't need a script. We don't need the prompt. You can run it in. I know you'll always be prepared. You are the man. 30 years running. Message saved. Next message. Rome, Justin and Melbourne, man, just listen to you and uh, Jake Paul chalk it up. And I got to be honest with you, man, kind of changed my opinion. I mean, I don't follow the guy, but I just assumed he was like a Delta Bravo. But during that conversation, man, dude is motivated. You were even trying to, you know, lighten it up a little bit, drop some F-bombs. But the guy has a dream in life, man. And I'll be honest with you, kind of rooting for him, man. I mean, you want to talk about the Rocky story. Eventually, he's going to fight someone that knows what they're doing in the ring. But, uh, yeah. Definitely changed my opinion on this guy, man, and uh, starting to turn into a fan. Message saved. Next message. Jim, Lance, and OKC here. <laughs> Had to tell you about this phone call I got yesterday. Apparently it was a prank call because he's coughing, he's sneezing, he's hacking up, and then he hangs up. <laughs> tell you what, I'm getting tired of these cold calls. <laughs> Help! Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. It's Rob from Reno. I just listened to the Ellen Stein Reinvention Project interview, and, dude, fucking amazing. It's a daily struggle, you know, so it was really cool for that to come full circle, listening to that and try to make the uninvention, the reinvention, and one step at a time, I guess. So thank you so much for that interview and everything you're doing. Message saved. You have no more messages.